Hello, and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And um, so good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of our listening audience, wherever you may be on whatever time zone. It is uh, nice to be back with you on the air after having a little bit of a break um, uh, as I travel to Myrtle Beach, a very productive um, trip just very recently. And uh, if you don't know about it, please do go to DonnaGore.com with regard to uh, the um, very successful book signings that I had at Barnes & Noble. I want to thank all the people for being such wonderful hosts there and um, hoping that people will continue to follow, continue to purchase the book. And as you know, 10% of the proceeds go to the Q Center for Missing Persons, which is so very important. So people, please do continue to um, uh, keep keep up with those endeavors. It's ongoing. Um, so to today's business, I'm very, very pleased to have a, a wonderful guest, a very um, warm uh, gentleman and a good friend of, of one of our radio partners, uh, Will Marling. Um, but our guest today is Joe Samaha, who is who is a um, a survivor? I was going to say victim, but I think after um, nine years, I think he's crossed the crossed the boundary to survivorhood with all the good works that he has done with regard to um, ex, uh, the experiencing the horrible tragedy of the Virginia Tech massacre, in which he he so tragically lost his daughter Rima. And Joe took that took that tragedy and has elevated, changed his his life and the lives of others so that there is some meaning out of the out of the deaths of those um students. Uh so before we bring him on, I just wanna say hello to Miss Delilah. Good morning, Delilah. How are you today? Nice to have you back on the radio with me. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever we are. Um, it's good to be yeah. back. Yeah, and we're always, and that, you know, I, once again, I, I commend you for booking such a, a fabulous guest. I think this is another issue and another um, uh, aftermath of the crime, so to speak, that we really need to get this information out there from what. Um, what has gone on since Virginia Tech? Where have we made improvements? And are things really better? Absolutely. Because um, I believe that that was the first massacre that people really, you know, had the first exposure and and started to capture attention. And as you know, after all of these years, Delilah, now it's, you know, it's become too commonplace. So we have to, we have to pay attention. We have to continually utilize resources and people 
to make changes in this environment. It's so important, especially for people contemplating going going to colleges, whether it's at the university level, the the community college level, and as you know, people are even addressing this in middle school and and high school. So, you know, with that said, we we had one perspective with Will a few weeks ago. So it is a, a distinct pleasure to have Joe Samahan. Joe, welcome to Shattered Lights Radio. It's a pleasure to have you this morning. Thank you for being on. Oh, thank you so much, Donna uh, and uh, Delilah. It's it's just uh, uh, a blessing to be here, and I appreciate you uh, giving me the occasion to uh, to speak about uh, you know where we were. Uh, during the tragedy and where we are today. So um, it's, it's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you. Oh, um, our, the pleasure is ours, believe me. And and please be be sure that if you can't listen live, uh, the show is, is archived. You can listen to it at any time. And please do, do share with all of your friends, neighbors, and family. Um, Joe, I know you've probably done this part many times, and um I don't know that it ever gets easier, but I think that um, perhaps with the passage of time, you you have a bit of a different perspective, and and we like to sort of paint a picture and give a framework of who of who your personal victim was, so that we understand um, from uh, from the point at which you are coming today. So if you don't mind, uh, could you could you give a personal picture of, of Rima first, and then maybe we can get into some of the relevant circumstances of, of the Virginia Tech massacre. Yes, certainly. Thank you. Um, you know, early early uh, on, in fact, a day or two uh, after the tragedy, I was, uh, I was asked to be interviewed by Stone Phillips and of course, um, um, the CNN team and Larry uh, King, and and there was a reason why I went to speak to those uh, those uh, uh, the, to the media. And at the time, I was um, going to ask for help uh, from from the nation and from from those that would listen, from our leadership. Um, and what I ended up speaking to them about was about uh, Rima. And I don't know, it was, it was Rima's voice that drove me um, to speak on her behalf and to uh, let the world know who she was as a person. And I don't see Rima as um, someone who's gone very far. She impacts my life, and I know my family's life, and others that were close to her every day. She was such a dynamic young lady for 18 years old who really had a grasp of um, who she was and what she wanted to do and uh, the path that she was on uh, affected other people's lives so positively. And it's not something that I've created, it's just that I've heard from other people um, who spoke of her. So, you know, I say uh, good morning to her every day, and I kiss her picture, and I say good night to her every evening. Um, she really has been, you know, my saint uh, on my sh shoulder guiding me um, through this uh, journey. 
and um, it's it's just uh, something uh, amazing that I could say for an 18-year-old in, uh, on April 16, 2007. It was just a couple of months before her 19th birthday um, when she was tragically killed, but she has um, just had that, that energy as a as a um, uh, academic, as a uh, dancer, as a performer, um, as a comedian, but uh, she has really filled our lives and inspired us uh, on a daily basis to continue the work we do uh, to make our schools and our campuses safer. So that's just a little snippet of uh, of what Remo is all about. Uh, you know, we don't we don't remember her for that day. We remember her for the. 18 years she had given us and inspired us, and uh, just a loving, loving, loving uh, child. Yeah, well, I think it's very, it's very touching and very interesting how you, how you greet and you say good night to her each, each day. I think we all have our rituals with regard to our loved one, and I could tell just by listening to your the tone of your voice that she's very much with you. And, um, you know, that is, that is very touching. And it's something that people who do not have this experience, fortunately, in their lives need to, need to um, pay attention to because we, we need to fill that void in some way. And um, I'm so glad to know that she has such a daily presence. Um, with regard to, to um, the actual day and the circumstances, um, in the past, we, we've heard much about the perpetrator and the um, le- response or lack of response or where things fell through the cracks and, um, you know, the trying to, to find this guy. Um, but what, what really captured your attention with regard to the overall circumstances that led up to that and... Um, and then ultimately when you learned that, that your daughter had passed, can you kind of paint your own personal picture, um, you know, without, you know, getting into all the sensational aspects of it? We want to hear the human story. Yeah, well, it, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a long story. <laughs> we, we have an hour, but I will, I will say this. So part of the story is what I call, um, you know, uh, we talk about broken bodies, and we talk about broken hearts, and we talk about broken minds. And so when I reflect on the number of victims and who the victims were, and so what is known to the world is this is the largest <clears throat> massacre on any of our schools or campuses in history. I understand, excuse me, that, you know, the, the, the shootings in Orlando at the Pulse nightclub, you know, took 50 beautiful lives. And, you know, we're sitting here counting, and there, there should be, you know, no counting here, but 32 lives, 17 students, five professors, uh, I mean, tw- uh, 27 students and five professors, uh, 17 wounded at Virginia Tech. But do we count? Do we count the perpetrator as a victim? Was he the 33rd victim? And this is my perspective, um, not generally held by many. 
But here we have a mentally disturbed young man, and he was known to be uh, disturbed. He was adjudicated mentally ill, a danger to himself and to others, and um, he had been court-ordered to get treatment at the Counseling Center at Virginia Tech, and he was asked by the court to make that phone call to the Counseling Center and make an appointment. That appointment was set for December 13, 2006, just a few months before the shooting. He did, to his uh, credit, make the appointment. And he did not show up for that appointment. It was the last day um, of, of the semester prior to winter break. He did not show for the appointment and he returned to campus the next semester and did not show up for the appointment, nor did anyone follow up. So his history through elementary school, through high school, was known, it was documented, his medications were documented, and he, pre- he began to present himself, you know, uh, around his junior year at the university at Virginia Tech. And um, there were people that noticed his behavior um, and would uh, start to ask the administration for help. Um, One of his professors actually said, it's either him in this class or me. And so they did take him out of that class. There were students that were actually leaving that class, they decided and you know, said, well, if he's in here, we're not going to be around this guy. So it's, it's disturbing to know that we had somebody that needed care. And we did have the head of the English department at the time that tutored this, this young man privately because, you know, it was, it was pretty close to graduation. He was a senior. And, uh, you know, in just, uh, just a few months, he would have, he would have graduated and been, been gone. And, and then he would have been somebody else's problem. But the point and I'm maybe making is that how they looked looked upon it. You know, it's just like get get through this. And is it well, typical that for do you know that for for students that um, are asked to get mandatory counseling or whatnot that um, there, there's a recommendation there, but perhaps not follow up? Or was this something that clearly slipped through the cracks or? Do you know? Do you have a sense of that? Well, we have no re- we have no idea why there was no follow up, mm-hmm. but we do know ultimately ultimately after the you know, the tragedy and during the uh, the, the governor's investigation um, that his file uh, at the counseling center was missing. So that was discovered about two years after the tragedy. Who had that file and where it was, and it was not on campus. So, um, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories, but, yes, definitely. I mean, you had people um, um, that were, were yelling for help, screaming for help uh, to, to help them with this student. And I guess the administration took it upon itself to say, well, you guys can handle it, you know, no big deal. But there was no follow-up. So my, my contention is if this young man had received help, 
um, would we be in this situation today? Would we have known what trauma is today? Um, would these beautiful lives still be uh, with us today? And would uh, would the perpetrator's parents have, have you know, uh, taken care of him? Um, I say uh, it was one phone call away from saving those that were killed and, and wounded. And that's somebody picking up the phone, calling home, and saying, hey, we have an issue here with your child. Do you know of any, uh, any reason why this is happening? But that phone call was never made. Right. But, you know, in light of that, I'll just fast forward. There is now a law in the state of Virginia that, that does permit counseling centers to call home if someone is a um, – you know, uh, a threat to their own self. Uh, if someone pronounces that, you know, I think I'm going to kill myself. Well, now counseling centers are allowed to call home because, of course, the you know Privacy Act has always been <clears throat> hanging over their heads. It's always been a gray area, and <laughs> it's no longer a gray area in Virginia. So, so they were not allowed to call previously um, the a family. That that just seems incredible. There should be exceptions for people that are receiving mental health counseling under those circumstances. It's a shame that it would have to be. You know, there's so many laws. Um, Delilah, can you remember? There's so many laws that are born out of tragedies, and you know, if but people were proactive and these things were in place, like, like Joe was saying, not, uh, you know, this, this might not have happened. And this is a very, Joe, this is a very compassionate stance that you take. And I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying in one sense that um, if things had been, had taken place differently, um, it could have been a whole different scenario. So, um well, yeah, that, go ahead. That's true, and there's there's one more piece of this which which we have to remember. So we have a national instant check system in place in this nation, and as part of that system, what it does say those that are adjudicated mentally ill and a danger to themselves and to others should not be allowed firearms. And I'm not going to go down this road here, but let me just to to this point is that. Um, populating that system. So, so the perpetrator was adjudicated mentally ill. His name should immediately have been put into the national instant check system. So when he did go to buy his firearms, quote unquote, legally through a gun dealer, his name did not show up on the system because his name was not put into the system. Because what the states are saying is we don't have enough money to maintain that system. So therefore, uh, where Virginia, uh, pre-massacre, was almost zero population of, of, of names into the system, has now become 100%. But it's unfortunate that, as you say, um, you know, the Commonwealth was not proactive enough. They didn't think it was important enough. They didn't think this would ever happen. So that's kind of the foresight and leadership that we really need and people to actually think about scenarios like this, but that was a that was a that was a system that was set up just for that, and 
when you don't populate the names into the system, then the system can't work. So uh, the federal government ultimately, um, you know, uh, after I'd say six to nine months of walking uh, uh, on Capitol Hill to get some money to populate, to, 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 uh, to uh, um, offer the states as a, as a kind of a reward, would you please put these names into the system, into your systems? The, uh, with the NRA's blessing, with the NRA's blessing, they allowed $3 million as an incentive for states to start populating that NICS system for those adjudicated mentally ill. $3 million is a pittance, but it was, it was perpetrated as the largest, the, 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 the only deal cut with the NRA and, uh, since 1990, and we're talking about 2008 or 9 at the time. So, you know, it took that long just to to uh, put money into the system so the system would work, and and that's kind of some of the some of the issues we're dealing with, and uh, just it's just some foresight. Well, looking looking into your crystal ball, um, you mm-hmm. know, based on everything that you've just said, do you see mm-hmm. that there are other issues within? campuses all over our country or or mm-hmm. even off campus that we need to be proactive now because I'm with you. We we just don't do enough prevention right. me- right. measures and we're very reactive. It's, it's like something like this has to happen before sure. it's taken seriously enough. Right. So I, I say education and safety hand in hand is a continuum. So we're not just talking about higher education. We have to start from K through 12, okay? And then, you know, what you what you grow in K through 12 uh will appear when these young adults 18 through 24 are in college. So it really starts, you know, uh, when when kids are younger. Those safety nets need to be created in the K through 12 uh uh, uh system. And uh, and and, and I, I call it the yellow zone, because if you don't catch these these youth when they're having issues in the yellow zone, automatically they're 18 to 24, and that's the red zone. And that's where, if you look at the demographics, are are most of the mass shooters. Look at the age demographics, 18 to 24. There's a lot going on in the lives of 18 and 24-year-olds in this country. And so... Um, um, being proactive, yes. So should schools, should, should universities um, assess themselves? Uh, should, they, should they be looking at what the standards are today and actually uh, going through a checklist um, of something that our foundation has created when you, you had Will Marling on on your show not too long ago, and he mentioned 32 National Campus Safety Initiative, and that's exactly what that is. It's a checklist. It's a uh, assessment, self-assessment by higher education, including community colleges, um, that can go through nine different focus areas to say, are we up to speed? Do we have, for example, a threat assessment team in place? Yes or no? It's very objective. There, there, there's no gray area here. And these focus areas were prepared by, and the questions were prepared 
uh, and vetted by methodologists um, that, um, uh, you know, are experts in their field. So, you know, for example, how many, um, how many counselors do you have on your campus and your counseling center uh, to, to handle the, 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 the load that you may get uh, during a stressful period? And typically one university may have uh, one per 1,500, one counselor per 1,500 students, and another university may have one uh, counselor for 2,500 students. Well, I know at Virginia Tech there were students in line waiting to get counseling, and they'd say, we'll see you in three weeks. So some of those things we know, some of those things need, you know, need money, obviously. Um, we cannot uh, talk about the hardware um, only. You know, red, the, the, the blue lights on campus, those, those buttons you, you push and the blue light comes and then the, the police officer arrives to assist. Well, that's, that's a dinosaur in my opinion. You know, by the time they get there, it's, 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 it may be too late. Maybe. So technology is important. Uh, do you have an alert system on campus? Now, most campuses do have alert systems now as a result of what happened on April 16, 2007. So, you know, sure, it costs money, but you either pay now or you pay later. But obviously, we need to be more proactive. And, um, and doing the assessment, number one, would, would lead to that. It also, 32 NCSI, National Campus Safety Initiative, also provides questions that parents or students could be asking uh, of the university during orientation periods, okay? Do you have these things in place? What is your policy on drugs and alcohol abuse? You know, what's your sexual assault policy, you know? So um, the very, very critical issues to, to today. I'm sorry. Shouldn't they be asking those questions when they're looking at what school to attend? Because if it's inadequate, maybe they don't want to go to that school. Possibly. But here's what I, I have found is safety is taken for granted. It's an assumption. Sure, they have a police force on campus, some type of police force, either as part of the institution or a hired uh, out the third party uh, police force for a smaller school. Some may not even carry guns. Um, and uh, uh, sh sure, should we be asking the questions? Here's what, here's what happened, Donna and Delilah. Here's what happened. Higher education, when we started putting together the, originally it was called the index, we were going to rank schools and grade schools by their safety performance. Well, higher education came to us. Even the experts in, in these various fields came to us and said, listen, don't critique us. Help us. Educate us. Make us better. And so that's, it, it, it took some, it took some thought the, the, the board of the foundation, we kind of looked at each other. We were on the spot. Those experts were in the room. And then they said, we, we, we decided to go in that direction. We said, let's start from the top down. Let's make sure these institutions of higher education have the standards in their hands and understand what they are. And the students of, student affairs people in law enforcement, you know, they're all siloed. 
Well, it's no longer it's, it's, we can no longer be successful in, in, in security and campus safety if we are siloed. Educators, law enforcement, uh, counselors all need to work together. That's and that's what we found over these last eight years as part of our work in the foundation is that the silos need to come down and everybody needs to work together to prevent um, other tragedies. And, and, and it, it is, it is, it's getting there. We have, we have student affairs people who pretty much control the campus these days, our campuses these days, and also in kind of oversee law enforcement, we see them starting to work together better. But that's a lot of pressure that came from, from I call the real heroes and those that were victims of the tragedies and their families and, and their survivors and those that are wounded, pushing for this and advocating for this. Right, and so. demand better and, sh and, and should have it. And so, you know, there there is, you know, change comes slowly, but it is coming. With with regard to, I know we're starting to address things uh, in terms of the overall initiatives. Um, mm. And I do want to, uh, we, we've got like 30 minutes left of our show, just to give you a little time sure. check. I'm sorry. Um, yep. We have, um, uh, when we were speaking about, um K through 12 and, and the uh, importance of being proactive. I know that, that part of it is um, doing training with the school resource officers. And I'm, I'm thinking of the changes in the new, the brand new school that was just built in uh, Sandy Hook, Connecticut, um, just a couple of weeks ago. Can you give us a little um, insight into um, what, that, what that is? I mean, how does the school resource officer um, operate now under under uh, these uh, this model versus what maybe maybe they had done before or what is it that you're trying to do at that level with the school resource officer that's different certainly so um, this was an interesting scenario we were um, at the Department of Justice um, cops office which is community oriented policing services. And we were talking about what VTV uh, was doing with 32 NCSI. And we also uh, began speaking to them about a little bit about um, actively caring for people or promoting positive practices in, in schools. And some of the young folks in the room, I will say, that worked for the Department of Justice said, that's very interesting. Um, this is something that was being developed at Virginia Tech by Dr. Scott Geller and by uh, Dr. Shane McCarty. And uh, it was called Actively Caring for People. It was about safety in the workplace initially. And it said, well, why can't we, we can transition this to safety in the school place? And it's pretty much about um, positive climate promotion, uh, use of uh, positive pro-social behaviors, um, relationship building within a positive youth development framework, and um, you know how how do we change the um, how do we change the 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 the, the sense of uh, relationships in the school, and since the office of uh, you know the cops office said, well, that's very interesting. What if we we put this in the toolkit 
of school resource officers are law enforcement that are in our schools. And they may be called something else in other areas of the country, but these are armed policemen, um, many of them who have volunteered for this duty, to be in these high schools or middle schools. And wouldn't it be nice for them to have um, to, to learn this um, as part of their training? And when we were going through our um, focus groups in, in – uh, and vetting all of this, it was a grant that was given to the foundation to, to actually uh, to write the curriculum. Um, during the focus groups, we brought in school administrators, we brought in school principals, we brought in school counselors. We had two different focus groups, law enforcement and we had educa educators. And what the result of that focus group is, is that everyone said that we all need to be trained with promoting positive practices to create a positive school climate, not just the school resource officers. So it is, I'd say it's probably only named school resource officer curriculum training, uh, but, but now we've learned that it's gonna be teamwork. As I mentioned earlier, it's coming out of those silos and everybody learning the same thing at the same time and working together to create this positive atmosphere in, in our schools and this pro-social behavior in our schools. How, do we, how are we gonna create change? We've gotta create it from the bottom up. So, um, so that's, that's it in a nutshell. It's, it's, it's a way of developing our youth um, and it requires an understanding of the, of the whole student, right? So sometimes that, uh, it's, I just say sometimes all you need to ask somebody during the day is, how are you doing today? And it's that student that's sitting alone, maybe at the in, the in the lunchroom at his table or her table, and saying, how are you? Is there anything we can talk about? Is there anything we can do? Well, now we are going to be giving that tool to our law enforcement, for example, and to our school administrators, and they kind of come out of their kind of their white towers and, and be able to integrate into the school system itself, into the population. Yes, that, that's so very important. Joe, just to share with you, a few weeks ago we did a, a, a very special kind of a social justice um, podcast with a, a woman in California that has created a wonderful nonprofit going national about social in inclusion. Um, just, yes. just what you described, um, not necessarily for law enforcement, but it's it's so very important to have the whole climate. I, I just oh, a last question with regard to that: is it is it mandatory uh, in Vir Virginia now with all uh, law enforcement and education that each school have a at least. Uh, one school resource officer, or does it depend upon funding? And and what's the overall uh, look in terms of our, all of our 50 states? Has this experience impacted, um, you know, that aspect of law enforcement that every school or middle school, high school has to have a SRO? Well, I, I think it's it's probably uh, not a standard nationwide. Um, I, I think there, you know, municipalities probably because you know many are, many many municipalities have money and some don't, and so can they afford to do that? 
can they afford to have these SROs in, in their schools? And that's a, that's a question. Um, I, I don't think it's a standard, uh, Donna. So um, to, to, to that point, um, this, this program, this uh, uh, P3 or po promoting positive practices, you know, was just approved, our curriculum was just approved by the Department of Justice at the end of June. And um, it's still not, it's still not, <laughs> still not printed and bound yet, so to say. But we are allowed to go now and work with the National Association of School Resource Officers, uh, introduce it to them, see if they would entertain it, uh, uh, um, educating their their uh, membership nationwide. Um, and we do have the uh, the state of Maryland. Uh, there was a grant recently issued to the state of Maryland to pilot the curriculum. Um, we are trying to also get the curriculum piloted in the, the Commonwealth of Virginia and also in South Carolina, because those are two states that have shown interest in this. But again, to, to your point, we're, we're trying to include everyone, <laughs> and, and it won't just be school resource officers. So. Well, that's that's very good news to hear, and we'll try to um, promote that online because it it is very important, and hopefully it can will go national. Um, Joe, with regard to getting back to your personal story a little bit, yes. um, I wanted to know if you could sort of give us a, uh, an idea of I I know you you have a, a book that is in manuscript form, and I think over a period of time it has evolved. I know that what you sent me, and it's called Broken, and I, I, I can see the connection, um, why it's titled Broken. Can you explain to us, um, are, are you one of the first people that maybe have, has, uh, uh, are in the process or have authored a book? Um, after the experience of Virginia Tech, and how how did this evolve? And let's talk about the contents of your book. Wow, thank you. Um, I don't know if I'm the only one that has written. I, I call them my chapter outlines or manuscript, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but they were a you know collection of my my um, factual and thoughts actual thoughts and fact uh, following the tragedy. I saved everything, um, you know, and, and I tried to recall everything. But I had a lot, lot that I documented, and I said, someday, someday I'm going to write my book. Someday there might be a, a movie about this or a documentary about the Virginia Tech massacre. So I, I compiled my thoughts probably, that's probably a year and a half to two years ago, I went to Deep Creek, Maryland, stayed in a cabin, spent the weekend, and just started working 24 hours to get a day to get that uh, compiled. And it was it was um, it was good medicine. Um, I'm glad I did it. Um, otherwise, it would have been all jumbled up in my brain. And as we know, as victims, uh, 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 PTSD and, and trauma just doesn't go away, and you just learn how to cope with it. But so part of my 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 uh, therapy um, was to yeah. to put the chapter outlines together, mm -hmm. and uh, oh. it, it's it's from the day you know of the of the morning of the tragedy 
to where we are today with the foundation and uh, the experiences I've had with dealing with uh, state government uh, and political experiences. And ultimately, the foundation was formed um, uh, as, as a, uh, I guess, a, a birthright of the resolution which we had proposed to the Commonwealth of Virginia rather than go to court. Um, uh, 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 you know, with with the state, and so one of those resolutions was uh, to uh, form this foundation so we could address you know campus and safe, uh, uh, security um, uh, deficiencies, and also to help uh, victims of other tragedies. So that's that's kind of the gist of it. But yeah, it does it does go through. You know the the trip down to Blacksburg that 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 horrible day, and uh, you know racing 90 miles an hour in a 70 mile per hour highway on Route 81 from Northern Virginia to Blacksburg, Virginia, and there were no cops on the road, and I'm wondering, God, who can get away with this? Uh, and that's because all the policemen were down in Blacksburg, all the state troopers were down in Blacksburg. So in the inconvenience of, you know. Um, you know, we had gun rights advocates that were saying, uh, sorry, we're inconvenienced. Uh, you know, we had to wait 24 hours to get our gun and an instant background check should have taken two minutes. And I said, well, let me tell you about the inconvenience of burying our daughter. You know, so um, <clears throat> it's, it's really trivial compared to what we had to go through. But, you know, the experience of, of, of going to the crime scene we had to absorb it all. We heard the 9-11 call, uh, and we, we, um, we went to the university. Uh, we were not told immediately that Rima uh, had not survived the shooting, uh, though they knew. Uh, so there was a, a great need of victims' assistance there and victims' advocates there, which the re university actually refused to accept the help that they needed. So you have what I say the traumatized helping the traumatized. And um, with the uh, slew of media that were there, um, of course, President Bush came down. Governor Kane was there. They held the, what, it, what was we call they called it commemoration. We called a pep rally. Um, and we did not attend that. Um, it was just uh, something that we we just couldn't deal with. We couldn't handle it was it, it made them feel better but it certainly didn't make us feel better but mm -hmm. you know t two months later we did some of the families did meet and we said what are we going to do about this tragedy and the first response that came from some family members was we need to take care of the injured first you have the aftermath and you have young people that have been wounded and they still to this day some of them go and get lead pulled out of their bodies so this is almost 10 years later, and still others that are going for surgeries now here and there. Well, there's a cost to that. And so we extended our hands to those that were wounded and injured, not only physically but psychologically. And um, we also said, so what are we going to do to advocate for campus safety and security? And all of this, we, we, were, we were miserable. We were, tears were flowing 
but we still had a clear thought of what we needed to do, what we had to do as a, as a group. Again, there were only 13 people in that room. We're talking about 170 people that were impacted, immediate family, siblings, aunts, uncles, grandparents. But, um, and, and that's what kind of led the way to, to putting the resolution in paper, on paper and speaking to Governor Kane at the time and he intermediated with the president of Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech didn't want anything to do with us other than throw up the walls and, and, and kind of uh, save the institution, uh, so to speak. And I say that maybe it sounds negative, but I tell you um, it was a process that we had to live through and work through. But um, I, I say the heroes are the people that had to do this. and. Uh, and had the fortitude and the heart and the spirit to do it, to, to do the right thing. Um, we did have two families that did go to litigation. They did go to court. They were successful at one level, and they were not successful at the Supreme Court level. Um, and so um, um, I think we made a lot of progress doing the path, taking the path that we took. But I do not uh, at all criticize the two families that did uh, litigate because we learned a lot more about what happened that day by doing that. Right. One, one more point I'd like to say of, of these mass tragedies, there's a lot of money that comes in. There's a lot of money that is donated. And this could be at Sandy Hook, it could be Pulse, it could be uh, other tragedies throughout the country, the Aurora shootings uh, in Colorado. But here's what I think we used as a prototype. And as it is now, I consider a model. Some of those funds need to be set aside for 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 the long term for for the victims and their families. Some of that money needs to be invested for your future mental health and for the therapy you're going to need. Not next year, not ten years from now, twenty years from now, because you don't know when it's going to present. So some of those dollars that these foundations that spring up overnight and get four or five million dollars at their disposal to help the families sometimes is 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 spent without the families being included in the process but what i do appeal to those victims is that to please approach those foundations or these nonprofits and say we need two or three million dollars to be put into an investment account and whatever benefit comes from that investment account needs to go to, towards our medical needs and towards our psychological needs for the future, because that money otherwise is going to come out of your pocket. So it's kind of long-term, long-range thinking. But right, that's, the reason. That, that's so important. I remember when Sandy Hook occurred, and I, uh, frankly, I have to say, our governor very much mishandled, our our state government mishandled the way that. Funds were coming in, and some of our our colleagues and very well known advocates were saying there is a much better way to do this in terms of investment and how to handle that. But I think that's another example, Joe, of being very proactive in saying, "Okay, I'm I'm okay for today, but what's going to happen in 20 years? Is this? Do you know from you know from talking to people who have experienced other tragedies?" Is this something that foundations typically plan for or other people, do they automatically use certain amount of monies 
to address the aftermath right now, but there is a way to put it aside, or is this something that is they're just show, slowly coming to realize it's something that we should do, you know, for the next tragedy, so to speak? Well, I will say this, Donna. I will say that it's something that every opportunity, you know, and I don't go barging in, in on these these tragedies, and I don't go knocking on their doors. And, and But when they do ask for advice, and they do mm-hmm. – and this is not necessarily the families. These are the handlers of the money. It could be United Way. It could be Red Cross. It could be, again, some of these fly-by-night uh, uh, organizations that spring up and say, we are Sandy Hook helpers. And, you know, people start donating to them. I do give them the idea, uh, I plant the seed of what our prototype looks like and what our model looks like. And I keep insisting that this is what is going to be needed in the future. So our arrangement with the Commonwealth of Virginia is that we present, for example, the uh, we're coded. So if you're visiting a therapist and the therapist says, well, this trauma that we're treating right now is related to April 16, 2007, then that, that invoice is submitted to your insurance company first. And let's say it's a $175 session. So that first $100 is typically paid by the insurance company, at least in our case. And then who's going to pay the remaining $75? We present that invoice to the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it comes out of the criminal victims fund. It's not coming out of the taxpayers' money. It's coming out of that now in Virginia for those That's victims? exactly how that's exactly how the settlement with the state of with the Commonwealth of Virginia ended up with that caveat in there is that those dollars do not come out of our pocket. And how long can they use that code for? Do they say, oh, well, that was, you know, nine years ago. We can't use that code anymore, or it's not going to be cut. If they can't deny it, is that, is that they, they right? They cannot deny it. If, if the physician or the therapist says this is related and it's coded that way, they don't deny it. Oh, that's great. Well, so... Now again, we you know, we had a you know, resolution or settlement with the Commonwealth of Virginia. It was it was it was mutual. We we, we agreed to it. it. Was we didn't go to court for this. Okay. It was out of out of court settlement if you wish. Even though the court had to approve it and the Commonwealth had to approve it, the legislature had to approve it, the sec- the attorney general had to approve it. So, um and and um uh, but but other tragedies, you know, you don't have that convenience, so you have to you have to modify it. You have to come up with working with these NGOs or these nonprofits and say, you have this much money. We want this much money set aside for our physical and mental health for the future and of our siblings or whoever's in that immediate family relation. Okay. And you have Ken Feinberg, of course, the settlement of you know, 9-11, BP. Uh, he actually went to Florida for the um, – for the, um, um, the, the the Orlando shooting uh, victims, the money that was raised there, how is that going to be distributed? So he's still a very you know, active, uh, I would say, negotiator. Um, but uh, you know, he's 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 renowned for settlements, and our experience with him wasn't that great. Um, but 
you know that that's that's another show. That's another story. <laughs> okay. Um, it, it, it's very uh, proactive again in 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 having the force, foresight of saying this is what we need now. There's an immediate aftermath, and then there's a very long term aftermath. And you know when you're in the midst of this crisis and and your tears are coming rolling down your face, for you to be able to 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 be able to articulate the issues like that. I just have so much respect for all of you that you were able to to um say this you know, to create this roadmap essentially. And well, I think this is wonderful mm-hmm. and you know, I so hope I mean, did you ever think in your wildest dreams that this tragedy you would become this n- national model and this is what this this has become. And does this feel like uh, sometimes a burden, sometimes a good responsibility. How do you how do you um, situate this in in your life now with all of your other life duties? Is this like a quarter of your life, Joe? And this is what I do on Monday, Tuesday, and this is what I do on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, kind of thing. How well, has it changed over these years? That's that's a great question, Donna, and and. You know, I would defer to my wife, Mona, on this one. She goes, so this is your other full-time job. <laughs> so, but I, I will say, I will say this because some part of you does suffer, um, you know, physically from, from the trauma and, and not just the mental health, but you physically can suffer your high blood pressure issues, um, you know, sugar, uh, the, the diabetic issues. This all uh, 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 is, is is from stress, okay? Arises from stress, and so, yeah. Did I put aside my real estate brokerage business uh, in Virginia for seven years to get the foundation up and running, to focus on our mission, to develop our programs? I call it research and development. And now we have two great programs to launch. Yeah, it takes a toll on you. It certainly does. But you know. With the proper support, familial support, you know, you're not always on the same road with your spouse, um, and and but you're on parallel paths. And I, you know, in my situation, my my wife Mona took the spiritual path, and I said that was great. I need to take the political and be more proactive path. And but here's here's the key to that in relationships. We continue to hold hands. We continue to talk about it. We continue to discuss it. You know, why am I taking Rima's picture to a political rally? You know, why am I taking Rima's picture to the, uh, you know, to, to Richmond, our capital in Virginia, you know, to these, uh, these hearings? Uh, I said, because I have to do that. And, and she respected that. She didn't like it, but she respected it. So you, you have to continue to hold hands. But, yeah, I mean, and that's what we've done for almost 10 years. We've, it's, it's, and, and, but you need to have the, the network and, 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 and the friends and the relatives. I call it the village that helps us. And, and a lot of our issues with our youth are, are stem from not, not having that village environment. You know? Uh, not, you know, our neighbor's kids are like our kids. And, and that's how it should be. When people need help, you need to ask, what do you need and what can I do for you? And I will do my best. But, yeah, you do 
back to your point, you do suffer, and it, 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 it's hard. It's, it's you know, um, it can be tiring, but here's what I say is that it's worth it. <laughs> In the end, when you can push forward and make social change, and create social change, whether it be on the state level or the federal level or even in our schools and our local level and our communities, that makes it worth it. And that's the best gift we could have given to our loved ones because they deserve so much more. But this is something that we can give them as a gift to say, you know, here is not only in your honor and your memory. And that's the highest I want to I want to give them the best and the most I can, and um, that's that's how they will that's how they will be remembered. So, mm-hmm. um, how to how to create the the legacy? Right, and I I think you have built something very, very very good and very strong, and uh, it has so much potential for to for so many other um, campus environments. And um, what what would your daughter have thought knowing knowing her as you did and kissing her picture every day of what you've accomplished so far what would you know she was a major what in urban urban planning but yet she had her hand in in all of these performing arts too so she sounded very diverse i'm sure she would have been very interested in what you are doing currently yeah she she is left brain right brain so um, you know, she, she understood, you know, performing arts was something was her passion, but she also knew that road, even at that young age, she knew that road would be difficult. So she needed something, you know, when she graduated that she could actually go out and, and, and plan for. And so urban planning was, was one of her majors and international studies was another and French was her minor but she wanted to probably work with dad, you know, when she graduated. And, uh, and uh, I didn't ask that, but that's, you know, that might have been her inspiration to do that. Um, what would she be saying today? You asked that question, and I would say this, Donna. I would say I, she is saying something today. She's just saying it through me. She's just doing it through me. And that's how I see it. I see mm-hmm. – the work that the families have done after the tragedy, I, I see it being, you know, the, the motivation comes from our loved ones that did not survive that day. I, I see the motivation in the survivors, those that were wounded that day, still working on these issues. A lot of young people who are graduated now who are out there working on various issues related to this cause and to this, this tragedy and that's my inspiration and but i think that's all inspired by and they're inspired by the 32 and so as you see many of them there's a fellow out there by the name of Colin Goddard who who's a young man that was wounded and survived and he did a documentary with uh, Maria Cuomo called Living for 32 and i think that is um that uh, that tells me a lot you know we, we just haven't gone home and locked and, and shut the door and locked it and turned out the lights. And I, that's, that's, I think the worst thing any victim can do. Uh, resilience is an important word. Time is an important, important word. 
and t- time, you know, you change over time. You just know, you just learn how to cope better over time. But well, you're I, speaking I, I my think language, though. You, <laughs> you certainly are. And unfortunately, our hour is almost up here, and I'm just, I, I'm, I'm so um, gratified for this hour because I've learned so much from you, and I feel like we are friends because you, you have touched my heart in so many ways. Um, I hope that we can keep in touch, and I hope that um, perhaps we can do a show on a different topic because you have so much to teach us. So I thank you so very much. Delilah, would you like to offer some parting words before we have to sign off today? I think it's been a wonderful show. It has, and I'd just like to thank Joe for appearing with us today. And it's it's just so amazing to see the work that you and the families, the other families, and also the injured. I think sometimes, you know, the those who were injured maybe don't get quite as much recognition for all of the things that they're doing, united all together with the families um, who lost their loved ones. And uh, my hat goes off to you. Thank you very much. We couldn't have done it without them. And that's part of the inclusionary process that we spoke of, so, um, and, and you have spoken of. So I, I appreciate your time and inviting me to be on your show, and thank you to your guests for listening, and uh, I hope we can do it again um, yes, in the future. Yes, we will, and we will, uh, we will circulate the show right afterwards, and um, do let's stay in touch. So uh, with that, we close out another edition of Shattered Wide Radio today. Uh, see you, see you next time, and everyone have a good weekend. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Lila.